Burke's on his feet. He looks up and gives me a grin and says, Hey, dude, you too must be from Marin. Marin County's A-OK from Tamastin and all the way to M.A. Fresh organic veggies in the market every day. Welcome to the Run TMC podcast. This is a podcast about basketball with an emphasis on the Marin County, that is TMC. This is episode six, and I am Duffy Ballard, and with me is my friend and coach and basketball nerd, Dave Levine. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Good morning, Duff. I'm doing well. I've got iced coffee today, and you are back east, so we're doing this remote over the internet. Right. I'm mid-morning here. Uh, I'm still on regular coffee, but I do anticipate moving to iced coffee later today for a little pick-me-up. So we will have a synergy at some point there, Dave. And uh, let's jump in. So this is an exciting time of year to be a sports fan. We've got an October Surprise World Series. We are mid-season in the NFL. A lot of bye weeks coming up. A lot of fantasy football start or sit or cut decisions to be made. And uh, probably most exciting is the start of the NBA season and a couple games in already. Uh, Lakers have played two games. Everyone else I think has played one, but there's a lot you could already surmise and predict based on this early NBA action. And we know that it can be a little precarious to make conclusions based on very small sample sizes, but nonetheless, Dave, we're going to jump into some NBA predictions for the season. You and I, Right now. You ready? Do it. Go. Okay, I got five. Five bold predictions. Number one, Denver Nuggets will repeat. It's a lock. Okay? They're gonna they're gonna raise the O'Brien. All right. Number two, Chris Paul will not last the entire season. At the end of the season, he will either be injured or traded. Or cut. Wow. That's okay. a bold one, Duff. Uh number three. Wemby, at least for this year, a little bit of overhype. It's not to say that he's not going to be a great player, but for this year, I don't think he's going to be Rookie of the Year. My pick, based on one game, is Derek Lively the second. I believe the second. Is that right? Uh, yes, he had, he had a good game. 16 and 10 in his first game. Yep. All right. Uh, number four, Christos Przingis is going to finish second in the MVP voting to Nicole Jokic. He's going to be a game changer. Uh, you want to know number three? Please. James Harden. James Harden's going to be, I don't know with which team or how, but he's going to find a way number three in the MVP, MVP voting. That's my prediction, James Harden. And then finally, uh, P.J. Tucker for the Sixers. He is going to be the first player in NBA history to start every single game, all 82, and not score a single point. And he's off to a good start, Dave. So in his first game, he played 26 minutes, zero for two from the field, but he had seven rebounds, two steals. I didn't look at his plus minus, but I'm guessing it was positive because he's just one of those guys that can do a lot without scoring and just hang out in the corner, spread the defense without shooting. All right. What do you got, Dave? Bold predictions from Duffy. I think you should get a connecting flight on your way home and go to Vegas and make a lot of money from these uh, amazing Thoughts. Um, all right, my I have a few quick ones. First to the Warriors. Uh, shooting is important, 
and we didn't shoot very well in our first game against the Suns. Duff, the Warriors were 35% from the floor. That's not going to cut it. Um, as the great Princeton coach Pete Carrill once said when asked, what's Princeton's secret? How are they so good? How do they beat these teams with better athletes, bigger players? Carrill's answer was, and I quote, we make shots. So mm-hmm. Warriors make some shots and we'll be fine. Uh, with that said, Devin Booker on the Suns looked awesome. He had 32 against us, so I think the Suns are going to be fun. Uh, and Bradley Beal wasn't even playing. Long season, too quick to panic. I, Duff, I'm going to take the contrarian view. I think Chris Paul is going to work out. I think the Warriors will find their rhythm with him. It's going to take some time. And I think he's going to help Kuminga come along. And I think Saric is going to help us off the bench. So I'm not uh, throwing in the towel yet on the Warriors after one game. I agree with you. I think Porzingis is going to be a game changer in Boston. I love the way that he played. And Dame Lillard, 39 in his Bucks debut last night. 17 for 17 from the free throw line. Kids, practice your free throws. The Bucks are going to be very tough. And then finally, I know Fulton doesn't love Luka because he doesn't guard anybody, but man, he hit a step back three in that Mavs-Spurs game at a critical moment. It was just a dagger, and Luka's just a special offensive player with his size. So love that the NBA is back. It's been a lot of fun watching these games. Yeah, and then, you know, Dave, it would be really exciting if we could have on our podcast someone who was an NBA insider who perhaps had spent decades covering the sport with a particular emphasis on covering the Golden State Warriors and was able to tell cool stories about coaches and players and experiences uh, and perspectives across the spectrum of the league. Maybe we could arrange that. Kids, that's what we call foreshadowing. Stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. All right. But now, Dave, from the NBA to the NBBA, a word from our sponsors. And uh, we thank our sponsors. We've been getting a lot of interest. We do have two new sponsors that are debuting on this episode. So we're excited about that. And we still have our stalwarts that uh, have been supporting us from the very beginning. This has been a journey and uh, it's been fun. So Dave, uh, why don't we start with the NBBA? Are you ready to take your basketball games to the next level? Look no further than the North Bay Basketball Academy, your premier destination for youth basketball in the North Bay. At North Bay Basketball Academy, we're dedicated to helping young athletes achieve their full potential on and off the court. Our experienced coaches provide top-notch coaching and training, focusing on skill development, teamwork, and sportsmanship. And guess what? Winter is just around the corner, which means it's time to gear up for our exciting winter programs. From fundamental clinics to elite training, we've got it all. Whether you're a beginner looking to learn the basics or an advanced player aiming for greatness, we have the program for you. Visit our website at NorthBayBasketball.com. That is NorthBayBasketball.com to check out our upcoming winter programs, schedules, and registration details. That's NorthBayBasketball.com. We hope to see you on the court soon. Awesome. And I am thrilled to announce another new sponsor, Marin's own Karen Horstmeyer. Karen is actually going to be a guest on our podcast in a few weeks. She's a Marin Hoops legend, great player and coach, played Division I, coached Division I, also a very successful real estate agent in the county. So just like Karen has coached athletes to victory, she's here to coach you to a successful real estate sale. If you're ready to sell your home or know someone who is, Karen brings the same expertise, strategy, and commitment to every real estate transaction as your trusted real estate advisor. She'll create a winning game plan for purchasing and or selling your home, So call Karen today at 
1-800-242-4311. Your winning strategy for a successful home sale, Karen is here to make it happen. So thanks, Karen, for being a sponsor. Yeah, great. I uh, look forward to having you on the podcast as well, Karen. And I'm going to pause for some coffee here. And uh, Dave, I have a question for you. Do you know where in the Red Hill Shopping Center you could get coffee? There's a there's a Pete's Coffee. There's a Pete's Coffee I... there, yeah. And you know, it's just a couple doors down from one of our favorite spots, The Hub. Indeed. So uh, The Hub, we have covered already their burgers, their salads, the Oreo shake. Uh, we've covered the Tesla charging. Uh, we've covered the tap beer. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into their French fries. All right, Dave? Okay. You ready? All right. The Hub takes their fries seriously and is proud to serve only hand-cut potato fries, which means throughout the day, the team is crushing Kennebec potatoes and frying them to crispy perfection. Their fries are great, but also not to be missed are their sweet potato fries, killer onion rings, and interesting combinations like pimento cheese fries or Hub fries smothered in caramelized onions and Hub sauce. Fries at the Hub are not frozen like 99% of the fries served at most restaurants, and you can taste the difference at the Hub. I'm hungry. Get me some lunch. Let's go. Me too. Love it. Thanks, Hub. Uh, And thanks to our sponsors. And Duff, let's get to, uh, should we get to our guest? Yeah. So uh, I know our guest quite well. He is a uh, very close friend and family member and my favorite teammate of all time on the basketball court. But he also, for the purposes of this podcast, is an NBA insider who has uh, a lot of great stories, really good storyteller. And I look forward to listening to this again. All right, Dave, why don't you tell us, let's do the formal intro now. Yeah, well, this is a special one. This is a special episode. We spent a lot of time in our first five episodes going deep on Marin hoops primarily, and that's amazing. We'll continue to do that. We've received great feedback from people who are loving the past and present deep dives on Marin basketball, both boys and girls. That's what this is all about, and we're going to do more of that going forward. Now, with that said, this episode is unique because this one is less Marin-focused. So for our listeners who don't necessarily have Marin ties, we think you're going to really dig this one if you're a basketball fan. So Chris Boward, or CB, is a Sports Illustrated contributing writer and has been for over 20 years. He is a professor in the journalism school at UC Berkeley. He's one of the best sports writers in the business. He's had an incredible career writing about basketball, among other sports and other human interest uh, topics. He's written four books, including Hoops Nation, which we talk about in this interview, and The Art of a Beautiful Game, and contributed to the New York Times Magazine, the LA Times, and numerous other national publications. He's written for Sports Illustrated since 2000, pending features, narratives, profiles, and columns. Six of his stories have been optioned for film, and seven have been reprinted in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. He was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. He appeared in the Best American Magazine Writing, and he won the 2018 Dan Jenkins Medal for Excellence in Sports Writing, given annually to the best feature story in the country. I highly recommend you head over to his website, www.chrisballardwritings.com, and you can find several of his Sports Illustrated cover stories. They're incredible. In our interview, he mentions the Monty Williams one, which is heart-wrenching and beautiful. I can't read it without shedding a few tears. Um, Chris is a podcaster as well. He's had a great he had a great podcast called Out of Bounds on Audible last year about college sports and the changes in recent years with money coming into college sports via NIL. He attended Pomona College, received a master's in journalism from Columbia University, 
and he has taught at Cal since 2016. Duff? Great, good stuff. So just a little preview on the interview. Uh, we are going to start talking with some Marin-specific stuff, some inside baseball, if you will, on uh, Marin Academy and Chris's time there. By the way, Chris and I did both play baseball at Marin Academy, and uh, we were not very good. Uh, anyway, we're going to focus really on the basketball uh, at time at Marin Academy, and then we're going to get into Chris's journey becoming a writer and a journalist uh, from basketball fan growing up to becoming a basketball journalist and that journey for him, which is very interesting. And then the last hour or so we get into discussing uh, specific interviews and spe specific interactions with NBA players, including Steve Kerr, Bob Myers, Jerry West, and Steph Curry, of course, and also um, a little bit on LeBron, Kobe, Tim Duncan, Dirk Nowitzki, Steve Nash. Uh, basically, he's you know, spent a couple decades as an insider with um, some of the most fascinating figures in the NBA. So we didn't cover everything actually that we wanted to uh, in a very long interview. So we will have to have Chris back for a round two. And as a side note, Duff and I had this interview scheduled with Chris. Uh, we were ready to go and he texted us the morning of the interview and said, sorry guys, can we move this to the afternoon? I got to interview Clay Thompson today uh, after the Warriors shoot around at Chase Center. So. Duff, we got bumped for Clay, but he's a better shooter than we are, I guess. I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's safe to say, actually, Dave. I think we probably could say, say that with some confidence. Uh, anyway, Clay, if you're listening, let's come on and debate that. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, let's, let's get to the interview. Uh, CB was awesome, and we'll, we'll chat about it after. Sounds like the plan. Enjoy the interview. Chris Ballard, thank you for joining us, my friend. It's great to be here. So uh, we're very excited to have our friend Chris Ballard. We call him CB. Um, listeners, if you have a keen ear, uh, the last name might sound familiar. Yes, this is Duffy Ballard, my fabulous co-host's brother. Um, but beyond being a fabulous brother to Duffy, Chris uh, is an incredible guy with uh, a, a pretty amazing background. So uh, we're very excited to, to have him. Um, we've already given Chris your, your background to our listeners. So I'll, I'll try to be, be quick here, just hit the high notes. Um, obviously a Sports Illustrated contributing writer, journalism professor at UC Berkeley, a lifelong basketball player and fan and aficionado. And um, really, uh, oh, by the way, also a podcaster um, with a very successful podcast on Audible called Out of Bounds, which I want to talk about. But um, the main reason we wanted to, to have Chris on, because he has so many amazing stories, um, it's going to be hard to not have a three-hour podcast here, is um, Chris is someone who's played basketball his whole life, and we're going to talk about that, um, and had a passion for it. He was a, a really good player, still is. We play basketball together. He's one of my favorite uh, teammates and players to play with. Um, but he's not a pro basketball player. Um, he didn't you know, succeed and excel in college basketball necessarily. He played some, but what he did was he took his passion for basketball and he coupled that with other amazing skills that he has as a writer, as a communicator, as a, an observer of the human condition. And he turned that into a really amazing career. Um, and he's someone who, and I say this, Chris, with uh, the most genuine appreciation, I'm very envious of you and always have been, and I'm kind of annoyed with you. Um, you you're living the dream. You're a Sports Illustrated writer. Um, growing up, it's what I always dreamed of being. So. 
Um, really excited to have you. And we just want to kind of unpack your journey of becoming a leading sports writer and folks, listeners, he's one of the best in the business. Um, so very honored to have you, Chris. Well, it's quite an intro. Thanks, Dave. I really, really appreciate it. So let's start with the early days of Chris Ballard. Um, so you're growing up, you're, you're a basketball fan growing up. Who, who was your favorite player? Who was your favorite team? Talk about starting to love basketball as a kid. Yeah, so Duffy and I came of age as basketball fans just after the Warriors' glory days of the 70s. We got more of the uh, less less glory days of the 80s with a little blip for the Slippy Floyd team. And I think we probably all, and, and listeners of a certain age, remember that wonderful game against the Lakers in, in the playoffs. Uh, Sleepy Floyd is Superman, I believe was the call. He Sleepy Floyd! Was it 29 points in the quarter? Was 29 it? points in the quarter, 51 in the game. Uh, they did not advance, but it was a wonderful moment if you were a long-suffering Warriors fan raised on Joe Barry Carroll and, and sort of constant disappointment. Uh, and personally, I was always a fan of Sleepy. I, if you go back and watch those clips now, it was crazy to watch. I was watching this morning. The entire offense is within the three-point line. And it's basically Sleepy dribbling the ball about 16 or 17 feet from the basket. And there's just this clutter down by the hoop. Uh, and, you know, from there, obviously, we got Run TMC, uh, namesake of this podcast, which was a lot of fun to be a fan of. Uh, Sarundas Marcellonis was probably the guy that I really enjoyed watching in, in that era. And then many, many dark days before the uh, Steph Curry years. CB, can I can I add one thing? Uh, you threw out Joe Barry Carroll uh, to us old Warrior fans. Joe Barry Carroll, the Warriors traded a bunch of players for this guy. He was a center out of Purdue. Is that right? I think he went to Purdue. Gave up Robert Parrish. Gave up Robert Parrish. who won many titles, but his his name was JB Carroll, Joe Barry Carroll, and his nickname became Joe Barely Cares, which I think, in terms of a quality of humorous nicknames, that that's up there. Um, but uh, I, I was right with you, living and dying with the Warriors during those times. And Sharunas Marshallonis, amazing. But it's also funny you mentioned the Warriors' offense at that time. And we talk a lot in this podcast. You've heard some of these episodes. The modern game, very spread out, right? Five out, four out, one in, dribble drive, motion. Everything's way outside the three-point line, creating space. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a very post-player heavy, condensed game, right? Sure, sure. And, you know, watching the clips it would be occasionally... Like Michael Cooper would have a spot up three. And that's about what you saw from three point shooting. Yeah, Magic right. wasn't shooting threes. No, no. What yeah. about, you guys remember the year, I forget what year it was, but the Warriors' whole promo campaign coming into the season was the center of attention? Yes. Yes. <laughs> remember who that was? Was Eric it Ralph Sampson? Eric Dampier, <laughs> yes, the yeah. center of attention. Uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Warrior fans have just turned off this episode. Um, tell us, I remember, tell us, Frank, we, we should have an episode just about really bad Warriors draft picks. Yeah. Um, so Duffy has asked me, Chris, to ask you about your quest to dunk a basketball. Uh, so when I was in about seventh grade, I was actually a big man. As you guys know, I'm, I'm about six foot one, never became that big man. But, you know, some kids grow early. And so I was relatively big. I played center in the local 
YMCA or CYO league, whatever, whatever what, uh, derivation it was. And I had relatively big feet and big hands. So I had these visions of becoming, you know, six, five or something. Um, and I, I was never very good laterally. Um, and certainly not the, the quickest, uh, at one point in high school, I believe Duffy and I earned the, uh, whether loving or joking nickname of the molasses <laughs> brothers, uh, with regards to our, our speed, uh, but I could better than Joe Barry Kel- barely cares yeah. though. Better than yes. Joe barely cares. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, and so the, you know, I'm not sure if jumping well was necessarily a good thing long run, but I would spend many, many hours practicing. And I think for any of the younger listeners on the podcast, uh, who are going through this, I know Duffy's son is now Holden is, is hitting this age where you start with a tennis ball and then you move to a volleyball and then it's a deflated basketball and then it's a women's ball. And so many years of working on dunking when I perhaps could have been working on ball handling or defense. Uh, but uh, that that did end up leading to um, arthritis by my late 30s and then hip replacement surgery at 41. So my recommendation would be if you're going to do all that jumping, do it indoors. We did a lot of concrete and asphalt at the time. But Chris, you did succeed in dunking as an adult every year until into your 40s, correct? At least yep. once a year. And you also dunked in actual games, which is something that uh, I'm pretty sure Dave never did. And I definitely did not. Yeah, you lost me at dunking. I, <laughs> I never even got close to that. Um, so that's a cautionary tale, kids. Don't don't dunk. That's why I haven't had arthritis, because I don't dunk. Um, okay, Chris, you go to Marin Academy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking a lot about Marin Hoops here. Um, we've done a lot on the MCAL. We haven't given MA as much love. So talk about, uh, quickly talk about going to MA, playing for Larry and Mike Fulton. And uh, did you want to play in college? Did you have designs on playing in college when you were in high school? Yeah, so Duffy and I were fortunate enough to to play under Larry Fulton. And then for, for a year, Mike Fulton, I know it was your first podcast host, both phenomenal coaches. And I think formative experience i know for you too dave uh working with with larry and then then with mike um and i think part of what would what was so revelatory for me at the time was being this soft marin kid and going to this private high school like marin academy and having a coach like larry fulton who was very old school and not something i'd experienced before and i think people react one of two ways to that and uh, i think i speak for most of our team that we reacted very positively and found this mentor figure who pushed you to do things, pushed you out of your comfort zone. So the Marine Academy experience was was wonderful. Uh, the team, my junior year, Duffy's senior year, was quite good. Luke Esterkin, who maybe is a future pod guest, was on that team. Davis Turnbull, Bart Birmingham, great group of guys, a lot of talent. And then the senior year that I, that I was there, I was the only returning varsity member. So mm-hmm. it was... We didn't have the camaraderie. We didn't have a sense of mission. We didn't have the wins. It was good for good for stats, but but not so not so um, rewarding on the other fronts. And so I uh, I didn't necessarily have the kind of college plans that kids have now, where you're playing AAU and and spending all this time and mapping it out. It was sort of like, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll take a shot at it. And I ended up at UC Santa Barbara my freshman year. And I definitely was not good enough to play at UC Santa Barbara. They were a relatively good team at the time, but they did have uh, tryouts. And so I decided, why not? Great experience. I remember going and Jerry Pym was the coach who I believe Tom Poser played under. Yep. Uh, yep. Another previous guest, Marin County 
legend. And I, I do recall getting all fired up, spending two weeks preparing for these walk-on tryouts. Um, my good friend and I show up and there's 35 of us and Jerry Pym comes out and we're in a gym and there's all this UCSB signage and it feels very official. And, and Pym comes out and says, well, boys, you know, thanks for coming out. You know, I like the look of you. I got some news. Um, we've already filled all our roster spots and we're overbooked on scholarships. So we won't be able to take any of you, but we'd like you to still spend the next two days doing this and, you know, and maybe it'll work out down the line. Uh, so it's a little anticlimactic for anyone with the, the hopes of actually playing for UCSB. Uh, the kicker to that story is there was a guy who played quite well who ended up getting picked up as a walk-on the following season. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, D Tom mentioned Jerry Pym. I think Tom's uh, was there at the very end of Pym's run, and Pym had a amazing run at UCSB, right? Coach Brian Shaw beat UNLV sort of a legend in was definitely a legend in the UCSB circles but um so that's that's cool so but, but real quick back to high school did you know so you good basketball player I remember playing with you around those years was journalism something that you were interested in too at that time kind of let's parallel track it um were you a writer did you work for the high school newspaper did you love English <laughs> yes yeah yeah I'd say the the best experience that anyone who's interested in journalism can get is working for a student paper. Because especially now when everything can immediately be published on the internet and you know, kids are growing up with social media in particular where everything is essentially public, having this lab where you can practice stuff and to a certain extent fail and have a small audience and have some mentorship. And I was fortunate enough at Marine Academy to be there when Timmy Workman, who was a professor, English professor, decided to start a journalism program and so I got a chance with uh, Matt Weisbecker, another student there, to co-found the paper, the Marine Academy Voice. And you're getting the full experience. You know, back then you're actually laying out the the black stickers to create the margins on stories, and you're assigning signing stories, and it's all very much hands-on. And it felt like a craft project, but also a bit like a, a bit like being part of a team. You know, you had your coach, and then you had your sort of like your people writing about this and people writing about that, but it all had to come together on time and there were deadlines. And so I really enjoyed that experience. And I was able to do that at UC Santa Barbara in my freshman year. And they had a daily paper, the Daily Nexus, one of the one of the best student newspapers in the country at the time. Uh, and that felt like a professional experience. And so you had assigning editors and you had a readership of 20,000. So it was legit and it, it felt like people were gonna read it. And I recall one of the first columns I wrote was about the men's basketball team and I was accustomed to writing for these very small audiences and I made some I'm sure in hindsight like not funny joke about their big man and how slow he was um, and then I recall him you know looking for me the next day on campus because of course you uh -oh. read it I mean, you know, of course people read this like you weren't just you were just writing in some vacuum right and it was an early lesson that that was a bit of a wake-up call. Like, oh, okay, you know, the people you write about actually read this, and it may actually affect something down the line. Yeah. And so yeah. UCSB was a great place to do it. And from there, I transferred to Pomona College, and that had a weekly newspaper. Totally different experience, um, but the the daily was, you know, supremely valuable if you're a young journalist. So P Pomona, great school in Southern California. Um, talk about your experience there and you, you met some interesting characters there, right? Including Mike Budenholzer and um, we'll just go ahead and talk, talk about that. 
Yes, yeah, so I transferred into Pomona in 1992, and my goal was both to get a, a great academic experience and then hopefully to, to try to play basketball. Uh, it's a Division three school, and at the time it was you know, a relatively successful Division three program. Popovich had been the coach there until 1988, so this is four years after that. But he was not – you didn't say Popovich, and people said, oh, you know, Popovich. He was a guy who had done well at the Division three level. He had inherited – a Pomona team and went two and 22 his first year when he was there and lost to Caltech and Caltech had a 99 game losing streak at the time. And Duffy. Pomona was the team they beat. Uh, so it was, uh, it was one of those, one of those sort of local legends where Papa then turned the program around and he got them yeah. sky act championships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but I didn't have any overlap with him. We had one player who had, and that was Mike Budenholzer, who at the time was a fifth-year senior. And so Mike had gone abroad for a year and then returned, but he had been recruited by Pop. And so he was one of Pop's last recruits at Pomona. And so I came in as a sophomore transfer in 1992, and everyone was quite welcoming. By then, there's a new coach, Charles Katsiafakis, who's still there and has been very successful. But my standout memory i've told this before but it's worth telling because it tells you a lot about not only mike boonholz but what it takes to succeed in basketball at that kind of level so he's a senior and his starting point guard he's got nothing to prove and in the preseason pickup games it would be there's no coach there you're just playing it's you know all the member varsity members between varsity members are out there and since i was a point guard and mike was a point guard we would match up against each other and I remember one of the first games, balls inbounded to me. I turn around, and standing right in front of me is Mike Boonholzer. <laughs> and he's in a stance, and he's picking me up full court. I'm like, is this guy for real, right? Just in a pickup game with no, co- yeah. no coaches, right? Yeah. Transfer student, like, just trying to, trying to not turn the ball over at this point. And so I'm doing, like, three dribbles, spin dribble, three dribbles, spin dribble. Uh, but that just – it wasn't, like, an act. It is, you know, this was just Mike Boonholzer, son of a coach – ended up in the Arizona Basketball Hall of Fame. He was six foot one, scrappy as hell, you know, not terribly athletic. I think that senior year, he averaged five and a half points, but he had 45 steals, you know, heart and soul of the team, one of those guys. You'd, you'd watch him and he's that six foot one guy who could guard a six, eight guy in the post, just all lower body leverage, you know, get the knees up under them. Um, and so, you know, at the time I hated that Mike did that, but of course, you know, long-term, it was great for me. Like he was toughening me up a little bit. And I was this, you know, sophomore guy. I ended up spending majority of my playing time was on JV that year. But Mike was a, you know, looked out for me. He was a mentor, just a really good human being. And uh, and so he was the one connection that, you know, maybe you see that coming. He ends up, you know, being a, a, uh, a voluntary helper with Pop in Golden State. Pop was there in Golden State, and he said, Mike, how about you come, and I'm not going to pay you, and don't talk to anybody, but you can watch and do video for us. And Mike was like, awesome, I'm in, you know, right? And then he ended up getting the video coordinator job at San Antonio as well. But this is incredibly unlikely. I'm not thinking, uh, (laughs) not suggesting anyone go Division Three sports for an experience like this, but we had another player on that team, Jason Levian, who was also a senior, and he was my workout partner when I arrived in 1992 and Levian had transferred from Georgetown and Jason went on after 
college to become a sports agent. And he represented Udonis Haslam and then Kevin Martin, and then ended up getting a job. And he was the GM of the Memphis Grizzlies and then the owner of the DC United. Uh, well, you know, one of these like really unlikely wow. confluence of, of situations that you would have from a school like Pomona. So my, uh, my Budenholzer story, um, again, back to Lavencamp, um, which I want to talk about with you as well, Chris, because uh, we've talked a lot about it. But just another example uh, of, of how unique these camps were. Um, when I was a coach at Lavencamp as just a college freshman, sophomore, so was Mike Budenholzer. Right. And he had just started working as video coordinator for the Spurs, I think, at that time. Um, but, you know, was or maybe he was still doing his unpaid stuff for the the Warriors. But, you know, we would hang out um, after camp. You know, the kids go to sleep and the counselors hang out, play pickup. And I'm hanging out with Coach Bud. I think I even beat him in the camp championship. I, certainly, I, I know I outcoached him. I'm sure I did. And uh, for us listeners who don't know who Mike Budenholzer is, um, he went on to be a, still is an NBA coach. I don't know if he's got a gig right now, but he coached, uh, was assistant coach for the Spurs for Popovich for many years, won multiple uh, NBA titles, went on to be a head coach of the Hawks, was I believe NBA coach of the year, then went on to coach the Bucks to an NBA title. Um, so, and this is a guy who was, as CB said, picking him up full court as a fifth year senior at Pomona, division three, was coaching Lavin camps for me, with me for, I don't know, 200 bucks a week um, up in in Angwin and uh, just an awesome guy, great energy. You could tell he just loved the game. So I still and remember a basketball, Coach basketball nerd, Dave, right? And he gets in, <clears throat> in basketball circles. If you listen to other basketball podcasts, he gets a lot of credit for developing the five out system that we see all over the place now and the different variations off of it. A true innovator. And, you know, Popovich, uh, again, for our, if we have high schoolers listening who don't totally appreciate who Greg Popovich is, um, longtime coach of the Spurs, I, I think, I don't know, you guys. Tell me if you disagree. One of the greatest NBA coaches in history. Um, I don't know, CB, how many titles he's won, four or five, uh, three or four, I don't know. But just a, an amazing coach and an amazing human being, a lot like Steve Kerr in that they have a moral compass and address social issues um, and speak up when they, they feel compelled to do so and care about their players as people more than just as players. Um, just an amazing, amazing guy. Um, so very, very cool experience for you. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, when you had Tom Poser on in the second episode of the Run TMC podcast, he was talking about how he just scraped by, you know, he just kept going because he loved basketball. And Tom's experience was, you know, I was not that good in high school, but I really wanted this. So I kept trying and trying. It was pretty inspirational to listen to the the lengths that he went to to follow this dream. And I feel like with, with Bud, there's a similar narrative there you know he was a he was a, a decent d3 player and then he ends up going to denmark and playing overseas for a year and then it's just like whatever you'll have me do pop i'll do it i came through san antonio in 1996 when he was there as a video coordinator and back then this is hard for younger listeners to imagine but his job was to literally splice uh, vhs tapes so you would you would take the black tape and you would snip it and then splice it with the next piece. Then someone wanted to watch film. He would have taken the VHS from four games and literally cut it up. And that was in this windowless office at the bottom of the Spurs complex. And he was making like $21,000 a year. And he was living off of these free Subway sandwich coupons that he had accrued through some uh, Spurs giveaway. And he could not have been happier 
was like that was what I loved about it. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, you know, I need to I need to get promoted. I need this or that. He just loved it. Absolutely loved it. And it was that same grinder mentality, which is, I think speaks to why players have respected him in the NBA because not always are coaches you got to earn respect and I think they saw that in someone like Mike yeah so I want to get let's get back to you um and speaking of a grinder so let's get back to your um progression as a as a sports writer right so you're you're in Pomona you're working for the paper you're writing hit pieces on the big man on the on the basketball team he's out to get you um move, move forward from there yeah so I uh, Dave, you'll be shocked to know I did not have a clear plan for life upon graduating from Pomona. Uh, and I, I looked back and tried to discern what it was I enjoyed doing work-wise. I was always impressed. You know, Duffy, I think, knew relatively early on that he was interested in medicine. And, you know, there's a path there. You go to med school and, and you become a doctor and you do your residency, et cetera. Um, but I had it was enjoyed all along play to to get into podcasting, Chris. You know, you got to go to medical. You got to do. You got to do a career in medicine to, to start podcasting. You know, this is the end game. Yeah, yeah. this is yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and so, uh, but I'd always enjoyed journalism, and I think what I enjoyed about it was the ability to tell human stories, and at the same time, constantly learn something new. Uh, you're always talking to people that are smarter than you or really good at something. That's one of the things I've loved about covering the NBA is you know, anyone you interview at all related to the NBA, whether it's a, a coach or a player or a retired player and assistant, you know, they are one of the best in the world at this thing that they do. And there's so much you can learn from each of these people. And so it's, I mean, if you're curious, it's a great job. If you enjoy the sitting down and observing and talking to people. So I, I think I enjoyed all those elements of it, but then how do you get from you know, A to B? Uh, and, and so in my case, that was a little bit fortuitous. I had written for the Camden Courier Post, which is a newspaper close to Philadelphia for one summer during college. It was just enough of what they call a clip in my industry. You need some clips to try to get the next gig. Uh, so between that and a little bit of collegiate um, newspaper work, I was able to present this idea to write a book about playground basketball to publishers. I was able to secure an agent, a, a very, uh, John Ware is a wonderful guy. Um, and I'm not sure it was a great idea on his part to entrust a 22 year old uh, with, with this concept, but the, the pitch to publishers is, was essentially, uh, I'm gonna spend seven months and I'm gonna drive around the country and I'm going to interview people and play pickup basketball. And then I'm going to write a book, which serves almost as like a, you know, a Rick Steves for pickup basketball. You go here and there's this court and there's these characters and it's a travelogue. And um, uh, much to my delight and surprise, a publisher you know, gave us a very small amount of money. And uh, I was able to recruit a remarkably good crew, including Dustin Ballard who came along uh, and we ended up going to you know, the 48 states, continental United States and playing in 165 cities and sleeping at KOAs and, and had this wonderful experience all around this shared passion for basketball and finding people who shared it and learning about why they loved it and how they did it. And, and that the book did certainly did not sell a lot, but it was weird enough that it got a fair amount of 
media attention, you know, NPR and, and Dick Schapp did a feature on it. And, uh, and that was enough to propel me to start a freelance career at that point. That was uh, a really gutsy the... thing to, to, to do. Sorry, Dave, to talk over you there, but uh, just right out of college and like just write a book proposal, travel around the country for, for seven months. And uh, it sounds like, it, you know, it might sound like it was super fun, but it was a lot of it was a lot of work, especially for Chris. He was writing as he went. There was research every day. You're trying to track down the best courts in a particular area. Sometimes or often they were not in the best part of a city. And, you know, we would come in and, you know, the couple of white guys that were either being, uh, you know, thought to be either scouts or uh, police or maybe both. And, uh, yeah, they it, it led to some very sort of interesting interactions uh and then you often would spend the night sleeping in the the van we called the van uh spermy because there's a color the color of a sperm whale and uh those were not the most uh comfortable nights i've ever spent uh in a, in a sleeping environment but anyway yeah it was it was kind of a grinding trip at the end of the you know when you put it all together uh but uh yeah really remarkable project cb the name of the book hoops nation Awesome. And so you then parlay that into how did you get hooked on with Sports Illustrated? So from Hoops Nation came out and I was able to get some freelance writing uh, gigs. This is around uh, 1998, 1999. Yeah. And for those not familiar, it's essentially you, you pitch a story to a publication and if they like it, they give you X amount of money up front and, and a contract. So I was able to write some for the New York Times and for Men's Health and do some travel writing. And then at that point, was looking for a little more structure and mentorship. I went to uh, Columbia Journalism Grad School. Great experience. It was about a year. And there happened to be a longtime Sports Illustrated editor who is now teaching the sports class there, Sandy Padway. A beloved, uh, almost Larry Fulton-esque kind of character, you know, gruff, mm -hmm. tough love and he recommended me to SI, and so I started there in 2000. And back then, um, you know, we had an internet presence, but it was CNNSI.com, it was minimal. And so yes. the majority of what you were doing, this is weird to say now, but was trying to write and get something in the magazine because no one read what was online because you needed an AOL dial-up and it took forever, and et cetera. Um, so the, the way you would start the job, in my case, for the first year and a half was fact checking. And that meant, and this is uh, not, you don't see it as much today, but the fact checking at the time would be, let's say Dave Levine writes a story, writes a long profile of uh, Steve Levin. And then your job as the fact checker is to talk to Dave, uh, get all the sources that Dave used for this, then go through a printout of his story and cross out every fact in the story you know, birthdays, uh, alma maters, whatever it might be. And then you have to call up all those people that Dave interviewed and then fact check with them. So you call Lavin, you call, and this might've been Cap Lavin at the time, or, you know, sure. someone that played with Steve in high school and you're going through all these. And now a lot of that you could do on the internet, but at the time you actually had to call these people. So I still remember there was this uh, fact checker we had just dogged fact checker and the magazine was closing on Sunday night. And so he's just calling Joe Paterno at home, uh, 7 p.m., just gets the number from the phone book, 7 p.m., Sunday night, Joe's having dinner. It's like, no, I got one more fact to check with you, Joe. Checking the state uh, college, the state college yeah. yellow pages, white pages, yeah. whatever. He was actually. <laughs> uh, 
And so that that was a wonderful. You can apply that to anything, right? Uh, you know, right. if you're a team manager, whatever it might be. So for me, it was a wonderful way to learn because you're going and taking a, a writer. In my case, someone like Gary Smith that I'd idolized growing awesome. up, a wonderful magazine writer, yeah. and you are just going through their work and and getting just a roadmap to how they put this together, and you see exactly how much work they put into it. And if I if you don't mind, I might segue into an NBA example here, please, uh, which is that. You know, part of what you see when you cover the NBA is just how much work players put in and also just just how exceptional they are. When you watch in a game, you don't get a sense for this. But one of the things that was really fun to do was to watch those early Warriors years, 2013-14, and you'd watch Clay and Steph in these uh, shooting drills they do after practice. And like to, to make whatever it is, 45% in games, we've already heard, always heard, you know, as a shooter, you got to hit like 70% in right. practice. But right. with these guys, it really, it really was 90% up. And I remember one time doing a story about them as shooters and Steph had hit, they had, they played this game where you go around the arc, three point <laughs> arc, NBA arc, so you know, 23-9 and you shoot until you miss two in a row. And so the previous year, Steph, had made 76 before he missed two in a row going around the NBA arc. And this had gone viral. And it was like all this like amazement, yeah. and understandably so, is 76 without missing two in a row. Like the consistency of that, right? Um, but I'm doing the story and I asked Clay, well, Clay, what was your high? And he's like 122. <laughs> That's not easy to do. No, no. And that's, but that's the level that's like the, the level jump that you, that you witness big. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I once hit X out of X in, in my gym, but that's what it takes to be Clay Thompson or Gary Smith or whoever it might be. Yeah. And they're doing game well, shots too, right? I mean, it's just like the quick release from a six yep. foot six guard. Right. With it's very not dribble, dribble. Motion. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We always talk, I always talk to the kids I coach about when you're doing shooting drills, do them at game speed. And th- there's a tendency we all have to just sort of, you know, catch, take a dribble, take a breath. That's not what you do in a game, right? And you watch Steph and Clay, and this is one of the great things about social media now, right? There are Instagram clips every five minutes of NBA players working out, but you watch the the intensity with which they practice, and so uh, that, that's but that's that's incredible. I I couldn't hit that number of shots uh, in an empty gym by myself with as many time as much time as I had. So uh, incredible. Um, Man, I have so many questions about um, your NBA experiences, uh, CB. I don't know. I want to. I want to delve into the Warriors. Um, why, why don't we just do it now, right? Let's let's talk about the Warriors. So, let's do it. Um, you've spent a lot of time with Steve Kerr. You've spent a lot of time with Bob Myers. Um, why don't we start with Kerr? Um, what are your thoughts on on Kerr as a coach, as a leader, as a human? Um, just talk about that. So my introduction to Kerr came. Right, I started covering the NBA it was 2000, and it was that era when he was still playing. He was playing for the Spurs, and Steve was so valuable if you were in the media, because whether or not he'd played in a game, Steve was the the guy you went to when you needed an amazing quote. Like that was that was sort of Steve's role. He was funny. He was self-deprecating. He had great insight. He was thoughtful, and he was one of those players that I think anyone around recognized had leadership potential at the time. Uh, Well-liked, I'm not sure I ever met anyone who who disliked Steve Kerr. And so that is 
transferred over. And I, I was trying to think about this earlier when, when I saw a list of questions you sent over, Dave. Um, often if, if you're in the NBA, around the NBA, especially covering the NBA, there's, there are the general managers and occasionally coaches who didn't play in the league. And maybe they played D3, like Sam Presti, for example, who was the Thunder GM, uh, or Van Gundy, who had Division Three experience. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot easier if you're a fan, or in our case, as media, we're often very similar to fans that way, to relate to those people, right? Because there's a real difference between that and playing in the NBA. And then there's the NBA people. So like when Larry Bird, for example, was the GM of the Pacers, it's very hard to relate to someone like Larry Bird because he, he's so exceptional and his experience is so different. His lived experience is so different in so many ways. Steve yeah, Kerr. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Steve Kerr yeah. has the ability. It's remarkable to seem like he is just like you, the fan, the guy sitting around. He's relatable that way. And at the same time, this guy's all time leading three point percentage shooter in the history of the league. And very well respected by all his teammates, uh, incredible competitor. And so that's, it's a pretty magical combination. And that's when, if you, if you're around the Warriors and you watch it, you know, there's certain players who NBA players who couldn't make the transition to coach. I think Magic Johnson is a great example of that, uh, either because you know, their, their sense of self was too great. So, you know, maybe, and you saw this with Jordan, you know, fortunately didn't coach, but even in his yeah. ownership and management guys, it was like, it was about Jordan, right? Or it's about magic. And then the players are sublimated to a certain extent, um, or they just expected people to be as good as they were. And if you're one of the best players ever, that's obviously not achievable for your, you know, whatever your, your regular NBA players. Um, and so what, what Kerr was able to do is you would you forget that Steve Kerr is Steve Kerr, who's you know won however many rings between coaching and playing now, so he has that ability. But at the same time, he never loses respect among the players because they know that, and they actually respect him more because he doesn't make it about Steve Kerr. You know, an yeah. indicative anecdote about this would be: I was bugging Steve to do a profile of him for a number of years, and he always said, you know, "Chris, I don't want to do a profile because I don't want the players to think I'm putting myself above the team." Right. So his he's like, I'm a relatively new coach here. You know, I've inherited this team from Mark Jackson. This is 2014, 2015. And if I'm the one on the cover of Sports Illustrated or on the the feature feature story, then what's the message I'm sending to my players? Right. You know, how can I ask them to put the team above themselves when it looks like the coach is out there getting or taking the credit? And so it it took about three years to convince him. And even then, uh, the 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 deal was we couldn't include pictures of Steve Kerr. So if you go back and look at the actual magazine story that ran in Sports Illustrated, profile of Steve Kerr, the art direction for SI did a, did a really good job of this. They would have a picture of like the Warriors bench during a game. And then there's a cutout of where Steve Kerr is supposed to be. It was sort of, it was indicative of how he wanted this to come out. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think he's, he's very rare in any industry. And that's probably pretty clear from how people have responded to him. So by the way, uh, I just heard this. Um, I was listening to another podcast about the NBA. Uh, Kerr has nine rings. So this would be number 10 if he were able to do it this year. And so multiple with the Bulls and then with the Spurs as a player. And then obviously he has four with the Warriors as a coach. Um, Just an incredible winner. And I remember 
watching Kerr play for University of Arizona um, growing up, Steve Kerr, the whole rooting section, um, was a great player. I mean, had a, a fascinating human interest story, tragic human interest story where his dad was a um, head of a university in Beirut and was, was shot and killed um, in a terrorist attack. It was awful. Um, but he was able to persevere and rise above that and is now very much, um, you know, as I said, like, like Popovich, you know, a socially aware sports figure, right. Who, um, speaks his mind and cares about social justice and, um, just an amazing figure. I mean, one CB, I didn't, I didn't give you a prep on this one, but just off the top of my head here. I mean, one of the stories about him that I always heard about was when he joined the Warriors, one of the first things he had to do was he, he realized that, all right, we're better if Iguodala comes off the bench, right? And Iguodala was a, and Iggy just retired uh, this week, right? What an amazing career and an amazing human being as well. But Iggy was a star. He was a scorer for Philly. He was 20 points a game. He was the man. And now this new coach comes in and says to Iggy, hey, we need you to come off the bench. And having the ability to convince a guy like Iggy now, in hindsight, you know, Iggy's amazing, right? But but still, that must have been a tough conversation, right? I mean, I don't know. You got my yeah, perspective yeah. on that. But. And it's interesting because we're, we're watching that play out right now with Chris Paul, right? Exactly. Uh, I, think, I think the prior to this podcast taping, the last preseason game was the first time that Paul came off the bench. We're watching right. like Steve Steve work it through in the moment, right? And it's getting it's getting players to, to buy in to their role, right? And sublimate the personal records and stats for what's the good of the team. And I think what, what Steve has done is as the players have moved around, right? The Sean Livingston's, these, these guys who are incredible talents, Maurice Spates, right? I mean, you think about, um, not David an West. incredible talent. No. <laughs> Duffy. Mar- come on. Spates. If you're listening, we love you. Um, we're, I'm not going to go negative like I did with Ben Simmons. Great year. But Kerr has been able to to just fit these pieces in and get everybody to buy in, right? And it's a team that I mean, you watch the Warriors play; they love playing together. And last year was unique, right? Because that was the first year when everybody was healthy. Well, Wiggins wasn't healthy, but the first year in a long time where you could see there were there were fractures, right? And we all know what happened last year, right? And so it'll be interesting to see this year what happens with the new pieces. But um, you could just tell they didn't have the joy last year that they had in the years past, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I've Steve a, has done. Go ahead, DB. I was going to. I have a question for Chris with uh, regard to Steve, and that is: Have you ever challenged him to a shooting competition? <laughs> uh, I, I have. Thank you for teeing up that anecdote, Duffy. Um, but just to, to touch on Dave's first, you know, what he did with Iguodala was the same thing he did with Harrison Barnes, and he's done with a lot of players is he goes to them first and he goes in person. Um, and so this is, you know, you'll see this in the NBA, there's sort of different ways of managing and some some coaches will delegate to their assistants to be like the interpersonal guy. And sometimes maybe that's wise because as a coach, they don't have great interpersonal skills or more of a strategy person. Um, what Kerr would do, for example, with Harrison Barnes is when he came in, he felt like Barnes was lacking confidence. And so he flew to see him, I believe it was on the East Coast. And we just wanted to fly out there and be like, hi, you know, I'm the coach. I believe in you, X, Y, and Z. Same thing you did with Iguodala. You know, you, you sit down, you talk it over first, you lay out the idea. He flew to Australia to see Andrew Bogut. Um, so it was like, it's all relationship building. And that obviously applies to 
so many industries, but it helps when if, if you're like Steve Kerr, you're so good at it. Like Steve, you know, he's five, 10 minutes with a guy and you feel like you've known him, you know, for months. And then you, you reflect later and it's like, oh, well, Steve knows like tens of thousands of people, but he will ask, he will ask this reporter about, you know, hey, how are the kids? How's this? How's that? Right. Amazing. All right. Talk about how you kicked his ass in a shooting competition. So, Steve, this is also uh, a testament to Steve that he would do this. I was writing a book in 2008 called The Art of a Beautiful Game, and the concept was uh, about the craft of basketball, just sort of going deep. Each chapter, one was defense, one was rebounding, one was passing, and I would focus on one player in a lot of cases. So for passing, it was Steve Nash. Just really break down Steve Nash. And for uh, defense, it was Shane Battier. Just go deep into Shane Battier. At the time, Shane Battier, for the younger listeners, was a tremendous team defender and a pretty good perimeter defender and sort of known for his defense. And I want to do a, a chapter on shooting. And my hope was that use myself as a reader surrogate. And the concept would be to challenge a really good shooter to a three-point shootout to, to sort of create a, hopefully, a narrative that showed us the difference between you know, those of us who play at the Y and, you know, whatever, I had a good shooting day Sunday. We sort of think, oh, we're good shooters. What it, you know, what it looks like to see someone who, who does this for a living. And so um, Steve was incredibly generous to agree to this because I'm basically asking him, I'm saying, I, I have nothing to lose because I'm a writer who happens to be writing about the NBA. Right. And, hey, will you do this three-point shootout with me for my book? Um, and Steve, he's game. He's ready for it. So I fly down to to Phoenix. He was the general manager of the Phoenix Suns at the time. This is prior to his coaching days. And, you know, he, Steve retired, then he did broadcasting, and he's a GM of the Suns, and then he became the Warriors coach in that order. Um, and so, I, you know, I show up and we're at the arena, and it's after a practice, and most of the players have left. And Steve comes down from his office over the court, and he's like, Hey, you should put my gear on. And I was like, That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. And so he comes back a few minutes later wearing like old tennis shoes and ratty gym shorts and his son's t-shirt does not look, he's not geared up, let's say. Right. Uh, and he's, right. he's 43 years old at the time. I'm 35. He has not been playing much. He's a GM. You know, he's spending his time fretting for the most part. His knees yeah. are pretty bad, but he agrees to do this. We warm up a little bit and there's one son's player still there on the side of the court and it happens to be Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, so Shaq is there talking to a reporter and he is just heckling the hell out of us. <laughs> when do we sign these old guys? Like we just <laughs> have it. And Steven are out there, you know, lofting up some jumpers and um and then so we we get into it, we shoot some college threes and then we do the NBA shootout. And I asked Steve like ahead of time, like, what do you think in here? He's like, Well, I haven't played in a while and at this age with my knees, I think the corner threes I'll be pretty good, twenty two feet, right? It's the long ones, 23-9, where I'm a little worried about it. Uh, just getting sort of the oomph on it. And so his prediction was that he would hit 13 out of 25. And to give you perspective on that, during the NBA three-point contest most years, that might get you the second round. It might not. It's sort of like the, around the cutoff point of, of where you are. Right. And, you know, the really good shooters will hit around 20. And, you know, that's what Steve would hit when he would win the NBA shootout is around 20. And so I go first because it's it's better for narrative tension, right? Because then there's at least a concept that I could I could win this, and um, uh, and I hit 13 out of 25, which you know a little disappointed in, but it was it was you know I would have hoped it a few more, right? But it was good enough to create a construct where Steve had to essentially beat that, right? right. Um, so Steve goes out there, 
and he doesn't look too hot to start. He misses a few early. He's three of six. And that's the moment in the book where I pause the, the narrative, which is a writing trick. You pause it and then you put all this context in the middle and the chances there might be some kind of dramatic payoff. Uh, and there was in this case because for six shots, it looked like maybe I had a chance. And then Steve just lights it up. He hits the last 11 NBA three-pointers in a row, coming down from his office in tennis shoes without warm-up. He gets one round. He finishes 21 of 25. It was, it was remarkable. And he is so pumped. He's high-fiving me. He's ready to go play. <laughs> we might have hugged. I was so happy for him. Uh, and you could That's see awesome. the juice was back. And he's like, I didn't, think, I didn't think I'd have it. And then we play horse, and he destroys me on horse, and he hits a, like a 40-footer to to win that and it was to me it was indicative of a few things about steve you know one here's this human being being willing to try this like he has the confidence to try it but also knowing he has so much to lose um and two this idea of the repetition it takes to be a pure shooter you know steve told me that occasionally during his playing career in the middle of the night, he would sit bolt upright in bed with his hand sticking out, like he's ready to receive a pass and shoot it. And his wife would wake up like, you know what the hell are you doing, Steve, right? It, it became this instinctual thing for him. So even at 43, you pull him out of the GM's office and you know, that was still there. Like that muscle memory was just not going to go away. That's that's an amazing story. That's awesome. And it's, um, I mean, I'm sure today he could still probably knocked down 15 for 25, right? I mean, the guy could still shoot it. I think the distance might get him just because of his, his various ailments, but he, free throws, he would probably, like him and Steph continued to shoot their free throw contest. The way they'd shoot their free throw contest at the end of practice, I'm sure you know, yeah. but I'm not sure our yeah. listeners do, is you got one if you made it, and you got two if you switched it. So it had to be a swish. And of course, Steph's scoring you know, 13 out of 10. Yeah, Bob Mitchell and I do that. Uh, we talk about Bob a lot, but Bob and I do that as well. He always beats me. Um, Kerr, for our younger listeners, Steve Kerr hit one of the greatest, most famous shots in NBA history. Michael Jordan had the ball, deciding game, final seconds. They double team him. He drives. He kicks it out to Steve Kerr. Kerr hits a 18-footer to win the NBA title. Um, amazing career. So we're very fortunate to have him as our coach um, and he's a great guy and CB amazing that you've had this, uh, this chance to get to know him. So um, staying on the warriors, I want to talk about Bob Myers. I'll, I'll really quick say that. So Bob Myers, for those of you who don't know, has been the warriors GM for years. This is his first year, not as a GM for what? 10, I think. Um, but Bob was a walk on at UCLA. I got to know Bob when I was coaching Lavin camps and he was a walk on at UCLA and Steve was the coach at UCLA and Bob and I would hang out and coach our teams together and hang out in the dorms and was a really cool guy. He's from the East Bay, went to Monte Vista high school and he's gone on to be, you know, uh, multiple NBA titles, one of the greatest GMs in modern history. Um, and I know CB, you've spent a lot of time with Bob. So why don't you talk about Bob? Yeah, Bob is like Steve. He's one of those people in the basketball world who seems, you know, like one of us, right? Uh, Here's, here's a guy, when he when he went to UCLA, he, he asked if he could be the team manager. And Steve Lavin's like, you know, why don't you aim a little higher? You know, why don't you try to walk on, right? And then, you know, once he did, he's, he's on this title team and he gets the nickname uh, Gump, like Forrest Gump. 
because Bob Myers just kept on being like in the picture of all these, for those who haven't seen Forrest Gump, the movie, yeah. he sort of ends up in all these historical moments. Tom Hanks, great movie. Um, yeah. But he, you know, that was Bob Myers. And, you know, and he's very self-deprecating again, but he goes to law school afterwards and then becomes a very successful agent and then becomes a GM in training essentially for the Warriors and ends up working under Jerry West. Right. And it can all seem very fortuitous, you know, Gump like looking back. But then you talk to people about Bob Myers and you realize he has a lot of incredible hard work. When I asked Steve Lavin for a story about his, um, how do you describe Bob? He's like, my headline is he's very earnest. You know, here's this guy who just cares so much. His high school coach described him as like Rodman, actually, this manic yeah. intensity, you know, just so much energy put out. Uh, and, and so when Myers came to the Warriors, he was, you know, was sort of like a first of a breed of a agent becoming a general manager. This didn't used to happen as much. Now we see it more often in the NBA. And so I think it was a fair amount of skepticism. And that's why, you know, you had Jerry West there to guide him, sort of a mentorship training wheels kind of situation. Uh, and then, you know, Bob, as we all know, ends up forging this remarkable partnership with Steve Kerr. It rarely do you see, I think actually because Bob, he stepped down this after this past year uh, and he was not pushed out anyway. Everyone wanted him to stay. Steph's lobbying him to stay. Draymond's lobbying him to stay. Obviously, Steve would have loved for him to stay. But I remember talking to those two, Steve and Bob, at, at one point in their time together, and they said, look, we both know how this is going to end. This is how it is in the NBA, right? One of us is going to get fired. You know, you don't, you don't like, maybe if you're players, yeah. you get to write it out together, but GMs and coaches, our lifespan isn't very long. And so it's pretty remarkable that they were able to, to end and there it was just one person steps away and i'm sure steve will probably coach a while longer uh sorry i'm getting off track a bit but i think one of the things that that's great about bob myers is he he really still sees it as that guy who loves playing and so you know he's had a hip replacement um uh the same as as myself and duffy uh but prior to that he would play three times a week as a gm and this was his outlet this was the way that he would process all this energy and this nervous anxiety that you get when you're a GM. And so they'd actually would have what they call the shadow playoffs during the uh, NBA, NBA playoffs. And so the front offices of these various teams would be playing each other in pickup at the same time that the actual playoffs were going on. And so I, I recall Bob was so excited one time I was seeing him because it was like New Orleans, Memphis and Houston and then the Golden State won it all in the shadow playoffs. Uh, and so he's that kind of guy, like he just absolutely loves the game at this sort of like gym rat hoops junkie level. And I think that's what you saw that transferred over. You know, you, you need, to, need to understand analytics. You need to be good with the numbers, but his passion for it, like the players totally get that. Well, I, I played pickup with Bob a lot in the summers at Lavin camps and the, the guy could play. I mean, he, he, and it's a great story about how he, I forget he was walking through the administrate the athletic offices at UCLA as a freshman with his dad. And he was looking for, I think he was looking for the crew office or something yep. like he was looking for some other sport. And he literally like runs into Steve Lavin, who was the assistant coach at the time. And he's like, where's the, where's the, the rowing office. And Steve's looking at him like this. Bob's like, what is he? Six, five, six, six, Chris. Like he's a six, seven. Yeah. He's big. Six, seven. He's, he's an athletic, yeah. big, good looking guy. And Steve's like, crew what how about basketball why don't you come play for us and bob's like it's ucla and, and so steve convinces him to walk on 
and he walks on. And my wife, Katie, went to UCLA at this time. And she was not – she's now a big basketball fan. She comes to all of our adult league games. She's a huge fan. But um, and at the time, she was – more of those games than you do, Dave. She does. Yeah. We, we don't have to talk about that right now. Let's stay positive, Duffy. Um, but Katie still remembers the UCLA rooting section when Bob would come in the game. B.O.B. Bob. Like, they would cheer for him. Kind of like Rudy, you know. But then, all of a sudden – the guy, Rudy, the guy who, hey, the walk-on, the cute walk-on guy is putting in 20 points a game. Like, he's a legit, really good basketball player. And there are these stories about how the Warriors would go and play at San Quentin every year, right? They go play, yep. and they just did it um, recently, and it's an amazing thing that they do. And and Myers would go play in those games, and he'd drop 40 points on these guys who were good players. You know, so, so Bob could definitely play. But he's had um, quite a career, and I think that, there's this assumption that's made and I want to get to Steph next because I want to talk about Steph. Um, but there is this assumption that the Warriors have benefited greatly, obviously from Steph and Clay and Draymond. And that's very true. And Steph is a one of one amazing player. But if Steve Kerr is not the, the coach and person that he is, and if Bob Myers is not the people person and communicator and manager that he is, this team, in my opinion, does not win like they've won. So they don't do it without Steph, but they also don't do it without Kerr and Myers. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think one of the things, you know, when I asked Bob about, is it does it get frustrating when everyone thinks they could do your job, right? Like a GM, like, oh, I could I could draft better than that. I could make that trade. Yeah. And he said the, that's like 1% of the job. He's like, it's like the 99% of it is the people management. You know, I don't just call up another GM and offer a trade. It's not like you, you know, call your buddy, you know, right. Joe and, and say, hey, will you trade, you know, Brady for whoever? Right? It doesn't work that way. It's like, oh, it's so much relationship building and it's yeah. so much handholding. And it's, it's like you're sort of a therapist and, and you're all these things to your players and your coaches. And that like that's the that's the GM's job. And then the what the what the public sees is the draft pick. So, yeah, the draft pick course is very important sure. of course. Um, but it's not the hardest part like like you look at Draymond right and Draymond's an incredible talent amazing energy but Draymond's volatile and has had some issues and I mean you'll see times where Bob is literally down on the bench in Draymond's ear talking to him kind of talking him down Kerr's coaching the game but Bob's there in Draymond's ear when Draymond got suspended for the famed kick uh, and he's, you know, can't be in the stadium. So he's at the A's game next door. Bob's in the in the box with Draymond, hanging out with him and and working through it. So um, the, you're, you're so right. I mean, we all see Moneyball, right? And we see Brad Pitt as Billy Bean wheeling and dealing. Um, and that's that's a small percentage of the job, right? Yeah, um, yes. Yeah. So CB, you were at Steph's first game, correct? And I want um, our young fans to appreciate that so a lot of us remember this, but when Steph started in the NBA, he was injured a lot his first couple years, right? He had really bad ankles. He missed a ton of games. And when it came time for them to decide, okay, should we renew his contract or not? That was a big debate um, amongst Bay Area news organizations. And should he or sh should they or shouldn't they re-up with Steph? You know, should they trade Monte Ellis or not, right? And Lakeham mm -hmm. got booed when they did that. And now Steph is on everybody's list of one of the top five players in NBA history, right? So talk about your experiences with, with Steph and watching him play. 
Yeah, I'm incredibly fortunate that I happen to overlap with Steve Kerr and Draymond Green and Steph Curry. Uh, from a from a media perspective, it's it's pretty remarkable because Draymond may be the best quote as a player, one of the smartest players ever. You know, Steve is maybe the best quote as a coach. So like anyone who's been covering the Warriors for this time recognizes that. And then Steph Curry, I remember one of the conversations we would have around the um, with, with other beat writers early on in his career when he started to get good is like, oh no, is this going to change? Like a lot of people come in and then once the fame hits them and the money and the attention or they get burned a bunch of times, uh, you know, whether by the media or other people and then become hardened. And then often, like there's a third shift that happens in their mid to late 30s where they become sort of wise. Like KG became sort of this wise older figure, and LeBron has definitely hit that phase. Um, Steph, Steph has not, I mean, he's still Steph, which is absolutely remarkable. Um, but when he came in, it's, it's weird if you are just, if you've just grown up watching prime Steph and you don't recall what happened before. The idea that you would take this short, spindly guard, I think his vert at the NBA Combine was 29.5, which, you know, it's great for for one of us, but if you're trying to be an NBA point guard, he's not especially, I mean, he doesn't look fast. He is fast, but he doesn't look fast. So this was not a guy who had great expectations, obviously undersized, et cetera. And then Monte Ellis was not a fun player to play with. He was a ball-dominant, small guard himself. So you had two guards, the Warriors, who really couldn't defend on the perimeter when Steph was first coming in. And Monte wasn't going to exactly set Steph up for shots. So his first game, 2009, October 28th, uh, I covered it for the for the website. It's against the Houston Rockets at Oracle. Sell out because people are excited about, about Steph. Um, it's Nelly's the coach, Don Nelson. Uh, Warriors fans remember the way Nelly coached. Legend, so, absolutely. Yeah, he loves, he loves Steph. It was like Nelly and Larry Riley's draft pick. So, of course, he plays him 35 minutes in his first game. Uh, Steph ended up with, I think it was 14 points, seven assists, four steals. He takes one three-pointer, and he misses it, which is really weird to think about with Steph now, right? Um, And I look back at my notes, and I was like, he has the opportunity to be like Steve Nash. That was my first impression. It's like, you know, really good at, you know, creating off the dribble, a better passer than I expected. Uh, I also noted that the Warriors' chemistry was terrible, uh, in large part because of Corey Maggette. If you guys remember Corey Maggette. Of course. Catch, catch and go. Uh, uh, and then I, I also, uh, this one does not age very well. I wondered if he maybe wasn't a lights-out shooter, Dave. If maybe there was too much push to his shot to get it off yeah. against NBA competition. He's got no uh, future, shows CB. You, shows you what I knew. Uh, yeah. But he was, he was. He was shooting it still from the hip a bit. And he was not being set up off the ball, and he's gotten so much stronger. But it's still like, you know, as you mentioned, it wasn't until 2013 or so that he became Steph Curry, 2014 even. You know, he was still trying to find his way, constant ankle injuries, uh, turmoil with the Warriors. You know, Nelson gets fired, and then there's sort of just a bad, bad juju with the team prior to, yeah. to Lacob coming in. Um, and yeah, there was a you know, Nike wasn't ready to spend a lot of money on him, which is how Under Armour swooped in. There's that whole underdog uh, narrative around Steph early on, and they I mean, weren't running a... him off the ball back in, that, in those days, yep. right? And that's all changed four or five years later. Well, yep. well, yeah, exactly. Great point, Duff. And and so two things: one, Don Nelson's a, an amazing figure in Warriors history, right? But he was a for our younger listeners, Don Nelson was a legendary player and coach. Um. When one of the great warrior teams ever 
did not go very far in the playoffs. It was the we believe uh, was that oh seven oh eight oh six oh seven oh seven oh eight when the Warriors squeaked into the playoffs as the eight seed, and they were the first time that uh, ever an eight seed beat a one seed. They beat the Mavericks in the first round of the playoffs. Baron Davis. It was a great team, but Don Nelson was the coach. Very unorthodox coach. Would go small often, run and gun. Wasn't um, you know a traditional kind of kind of coach, and that was right at the beginning. Of what now, I mean, what Nelly was doing then is totally normal now, right? But back then, yep. it was unorthodox and crazy and gimmicky, but it worked. So, you know, Nelly, Curry was a perfect player for Nell, for a Nelly kind of system, but they weren't utilizing him the way they should have. But just, it's, it's amazing. I alluded to this earlier. You know, when the Warriors ultimately traded Monte Ellis and decided to keep Curry, the next game, the Warrior fans literally booed Joe Lacob. To the point where Chris Mullen, who was assistant GM at the time, I think, had to get up and take the microphone and tell the Warriors fans to calm down. Yep. So I want all those fans who were in that building um, to have some humble pie. I was not there. Um, but I don't know what year that was uh, when they traded Monte CB. Was was that 09? Was it 10? I, I can't remember. I think that was, it feels like that was 2011. There was the, the bogey trade. Yeah, it was trade. later. Yeah, right. And then the 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 second crucial point was when they were considering trading Clay for Kevin Love. Yes. And the front office was divided on that. Uh, Kerr and Jerry West wanted to keep Clay, and you know Lacob and, and Myers were were thinking Kevin Love, and you could you could see the logic at the time, right? The way Kevin Love was playing, but in retrospect, it looks like a you know sort of a a, a bit of a no brainer, especially the way the Warriors style played. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was I mean. It's that Nelson era was, as we talked about earlier, with the fandom of being a Warriors. We got one year out of 17 years, but it was a great year. It's a 17 year span where the Warriors were just terrible. But that one year in 2007 was almost wor- not quite, but almost worth it. You know, Steven Jackson doubling down on Dirk Nowitzki, playing him from behind to cover the overhead jumper. I remember Dirk being so flummoxed, like rather than being face guarded where he could fade. The defenders actually coming back around him and forcing him to drive. It was like Nelson was he was brilliant. It was Baron Davis with a dunk oh, over yeah. Kirilenko, right? Yeah, we that, got that yeah. five yeah. great games in eighteen years. <laughs> Honestly, I think I, in terms of pure joy, I was more excited that when they won that than I was when they won the title. Even it was, it's just it was weird. It was because it was so improbable. Um, it, it was it was amazing. Um, so, Dave. Yes. Why don't you ask Chris about Jerry West, whether Jerry West is a, a good interview or not? Can I suggest that? <laughs> Duffy, I will I will let you suggest that. Yes. Okay. Go, go ahead, CB. Talk about talk about Jerry West. So to our, our younger fans, Jerry West, if you go look at the NBA and you look at the NBA logo, that's Jerry West. You can't see his face, but the silhouette. Jerry West, one of the greatest players in NBA history, great GM, uh, iconic Lakers figure. CB, go. Talk about Jerry. Yeah, probably the the individual who's had the most success over the most sustained period of time in, in NBA history. You know, so essentially going from from playing and being one of the top fifteen players ever to then being a coach for a while and then being a, a GM who has continued to create these championship situations. You know, first the Lakers and then Memphis and then the Warriors, uh, and he's now he's now down with the Clippers. Um, and if you've seen the HBO series Winning Time, there's a portrayal of Jerry West 
when he's with the Lakers in that in that series is this tortured individual and it's definitely over the top I mean I wasn't around in 1980 but from what I've heard from other writers definitely over the top but there are kernels of truth there to the the tortured Jerry West and so my Jerry West anecdote he comes in 2015 this is the first Warriors championship and Jerry West has overseen the building of the Warriors so Bob Myers is there at this point. Uh, they had the Mark Jackson run. They made the playoffs. And now it's the first year of Steve Kerr. And they're in the playoffs. And so for a GM, there's nothing left to do. So Jerry is just mainly anxious. He spends a lot of time being anxious. He famously, in the fourth quarter of games, sometimes the whole game, he will leave. If he's up in Oracle, he'll leave and he'll just walk around the parking lot. And then occasionally hear a roar or not a roar. He, he's just too anxious to watch. So Jerry's... He's always been like this whole life. He's got an amazing life story. Um, but so he doesn't have a lot to do other than just watch and wait and fret. And so I was able to, um, Raymond Ritter, who's a wonderful PR director for the Warriors, yep. probably the best in the business, uh, has known Jerry West since the Lakers day. And he sets it up where I get to go down to Los Angeles and spend a day with Jerry West at his house in a gated community in Bel Air. And, uh, and so I arrive, and this is during the finals, so it's between games. What Jerry will do is he'll fly back up to Oracle for games, and then he'll go back to Bel Air, and he's living there with his wife, Karen. And he's in this house, and he has um, uh, some memorabilia there, and it's a wonderful house. And so I come in expecting, I don't really know Jerry that well, you know, this NBA legend, uh, this guy who's respected by everyone. And I come in and Jerry immediately is having trouble with his four dogs. They're just barking like crazy. There's an 80 pound sheepdog named Gatsby and Gatsby is just running around the house. And, and here's Jerry West just yelling at his dogs. They don't listen to Jerry West, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, screw it. And so for like roughly every 20 minutes over the course of the next few hours, it's just Jerry yelling at his dogs and the dogs just go do their thing. And he's got a pool outside, and so I asked Jerry about that, and he's like, well, actually, we don't use it because I don't swim and the dogs don't swim, but we have this pool. Uh, and then he shows me his setup, which is a, a living room and a TV, and this is where he sits most night watching NBA games. Karen says she'll sit there for a while until Jerry gets too mad at the TV, and then she'll leave and then come back. But what struck me about him was this, and I think this part of his success, was this combination of incredible basketball acumen, uh, having a strong opinion that was informed, and then this vulnerability and humanity. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I spent, whatever, five hours with the guy. I didn't know him that well going in. Um, and he kept asking me things. He'd say things like, you know, I like Bogut as a passer. What do you think? Hmm. And so he immediately would draw you into this conversation. I don't think you really cared what I thought, but it certainly seemed sincere. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, he would just sort of, he never said, Chris, this is on or off the record, but he just started talking about all these things. For example, I can say this now, but at the time, he really wanted Marcus Soul. And so he was talking about how they were trying to engineer the team to, in 2016, add Marcus Soul to the mix. And then, he, you know, he talked about Kobe for a while, and he talked about all the people in the NBA that he liked and that he didn't like, and he always had really good reasons for each of these things. You know, all these assistant coaches he thought would not be good head coaches. They weren't necessarily up for it. And this is 2015. So uh, at the time, uh, Tyron Lue was an assistant coach. He hadn't had a head coaching job yet. But that's who Jerry's like, you know who I would hire if I were hiring someone? I'd hire Tyron Lue. He's a great people person. He's a good coach. He's not a great coach, yeah. but he's a good coach. 
uh, nailed it. I went back and looked at the notes like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive, right? Went on uh, to win an NBA title with the Cavs. Is one of the best coaches in the league. Yep. Uh, and, and so over the course of the night, Jerry, he sort of just bears his soul. And it, it struck me he's in his 70s at this point. And he told me he'd just come from golfing. Uh, he drives 275 yards off the tee. He shoots his age, you know, 74 or whatever. He yeah. had just won $25,000 playing gin with his buddies. He's He likes to be in the game. Like, he can't not be in the game. And yeah. he loves it so much that if players said, Jerry, can you give me some pointers? He would tell them, come down to Bel Air. And they'd stay in his house, and he'd work with them for a period of days or weeks. So Harrison Barnes was telling me about how Jerry worked with him, and Jerry you know, flew him down and said, you know, you're going to stay in my guest house. We're going to work on your stuff. And Jerry's like, can I swear on this podcast, Dave? Yes, of course. Yep, yep. You've got terrible fucking footwork. Your, your shot is flat. He just yeah. tears Harrison Barnes to pieces and then starts building him back up, right? Yeah. And so he would have him shoot 10 shots directly over the rim with a very low trajectory, 10 shots with some arc, and then 10 shots with exaggerated arc. And he'd try to get Harrison to get his arc down that way. Yeah. Um, and it just, like, mold these guys from the great. He just absolutely loved this game. And, and I, I, you know, the idea that he would ever stop being involved with it. Uh, and so I came away a little bit mystified. Uh, I was uh, marveled at the guy, but incredibly inspired, right? He was the guy who just, everything, you know, you guys are doing this podcast, everything we do in the adult league, that yeah. pure joy. And, and as Jerry liked to call it, I'm positively negative because he was very critical, but he always thought it had to have a positive outcome. Well, it's, it's interesting. The, the, the HBO show that um, just got canceled after season two, I actually liked it. I mean, it's, it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's a caricature, right? But um, winning time about the Lakers. Um, the portrayal of Jerry West is very um, cartoonish almost, right? Like he's yep. so extreme, but, but one of the things that was interesting about that portrayal is because they they show him you know winning as a player and as a coach and he was just kind of constantly being tortured that he was so competitive so he didn't it didn't seem like he at least his portrayal in that show was he didn't extract a lot of joy from winning you win okay now we got to win the next one right and and that competitive fire i mean it's interesting you talk about you know he's still shooting his age and and i mean i think he, he's clearly extremely competitive and that's driven him his whole career. I mean, he's one of the greatest players ever. You said it. I mean, everywhere he goes, he wins, right? I mean, and that's a that's a great point and an underrated point about the Warriors' success was West was there when all of a sudden the Warriors start to, you know, strike gold and, and have success. Um, okay, as always, we could talk for hours. I want to, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up LeBron. You spent time with LeBron, um, Wrote a cover story uh, for Sports Illustrated about LeBron and his sons. Um, can you spend a few minutes just talking about your experiences with 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 LeBron and Akron? Sure, sure. But I want to cap off the Jerry West yeah. uh, conversation. To you know, Bob Myers and, and Jerry are very close, and uh, Bob described it to me once. He's like, you know, there's a lot of people who love to win, and he said, I don't love to win, right? I love to not lose. That's yeah. his thing. And he's like, that's what it was yeah. for him and Jerry. Like there was that tortured thing. Like I can't bear losing. I don't take any joy in the actual winning. Right. Right. I just don't want to lose. Just the not losing. Uh, right. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to frame it. 
All right. Talk uh, about our LeBron. friend LeBron. Yeah. Yes, LeBron. So uh, LeBron, I happened to my, my NBA coverage career has roughly aligned with his time in the league. So I've had a, the fortune to sort of watch him evolve as, as a player and then also as a, I guess, from a media perspective, right? So you see how, how people interact and, you know, who they have around them. And LeBron, when he first entered the league, was a phenomenon and he dealt with all that pressure incredibly well, I think, uh, you know, based on where he was coming from and what was expected of him. And then he had a period, you know, five or six years in where he, he really was sort of feeling his oats. Um, and, and you, you could sense it on, on our side of it. And then he's graduated to this elder statesman role. Um, and I think one of the neatest things to, to watch is, there's a understanding among a certain amount of the players in the NBA and Steph Curry's among them as well, that when you're, when you're talking to the media or you're doing an appearance or for example, you're at the NBA all-star game doing that draft where the two captains do a draft, uh, that this isn't just something you have to do, but really like it's an honor. If you are the face of a league, if you are carrying on this tradition and LeBron really buys into that and he really gets it and so you'll see lebron make a lot of a lot of uh i guess calculated moves that are for the betterment of the league i think he really yeah. gets how much the league has helped him and and his legacy and how important it is for him to carry on this for the nba and that's what david stern was always preaching to these guys and adam silver preaches now but it's really hard if you're like a 23 year old and you know, you're in your own head and you're making a lot of money and you want to win. And but also at the same time, everyone's critical of you. It's hard to be like, why would I care about the league, right? Why do I care about the, this overarching entity? I think LeBron is, he understands that. And so in your interactions with him, I, I'm saying you as in like a media member, yeah. you know, he's, he views you as a way to, um, to, to, there's always a, a message with LeBron. He always has a motivation. So whatever the reason is you're talking to him, you may ask him a question, but he probably has his own motivation. And so in, in interviews, you know, he will give you an incredibly detailed answer uh, to, to a question, but he may have something else in mind. So he may drop a little nugget, whether it is something meant to spur his teammates, whether it's something he personally wants uh, to happen during his season, whatever it might be. Um, so very, very calculated and probably the best memory of any player Kobe and LeBron have the best memory uh, when you're interviewing them where they will recall a game, you know, uh, Branson Marin Academy, 1992, you know, whatever it was. Right. And they would just run down the play and the play call and the sequence and wherever it might be. Uh, and so, so I'm rambling a bit for you here, Dave, but what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that LeBron has evolved in a way that I don't think most of us in the media expected to happen into this, this really thoughtful and nuanced thinker of the game. Well, those of us who are old enough to remember when LeBron was coming up, he was the wonderkind. He was the next big thing. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And kids, Sports Illustrated as a magazine was the thing before the internet became massive, right? I mean, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated was a huge deal. And he was he was on that cover as a junior in high school, maybe? S senior in high school? I can't, I can't remember. He was in high school. Chosen um, one, yeah. But he was the chosen, right, they called him the chosen one. And he is someone who had all this hype. And so many times in life, you have figures like that with so much hype and they fizzle out. And he's not fizzled out. 
he's I think it was in utero only got, actually, Dave. I think in utero he had his hand up like this you know, on the ultrasound. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, he's the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. He's still going. Um, he's in amazing shape. He's won several titles, and he's just an, an icon. And so it's pretty cool to see someone who, in high school, everybody knew his name. Uh, you know, you could say Tiger Woods was, was like that, too. I mean, obviously, Tiger had his his challenges, his ups and downs, but Tiger delivered on the promise when he was a, a kid growing up that he was going to be the next big thing. I mean, LeBron and Tiger, I think, are unique in that they actually delivered on the the promise, right? Um, yep. On the potential. Dave, so, Dave um, you're getting off topic cool. a little bit. Sorry, Duff. I never <laughs> I have do a question. that. I have a question. Uh, and I, I know we need to get to crunch time here soon, but I would be interested in getting Chris's take on how he prepares for an interview and how it might be different with someone like LeBron versus Steve Kerr versus Steph. How much difference in the preparation is there from player to player or coach to coach when you're, you know, you say that LeBron you know, pretty much has an agenda going in, others may not. So how do, how do you account for that as you're preparing to uh, do the interview? Yeah, probably uh, not too dissimilar from how the Run TMC podcast hosts uh, prepare. Uh, a lot of iced but, coffee, you know, a lot of Chris? Yes, iced coffee. Um, but yeah, so first, what's your time frame like? Sometimes with LeBron, it may be three minutes. It may be after a game, and you may be walking with him to the bus, which is uh, the walk-along is like a common NBA practice. If you want to try to get a player alone, there's a media scrum. Now a lot of times it's you'll see them up at a, a table, right, and that's live-streamed. And so for our purposes, everyone's already watching that, so you're not getting anything new from that. And then there's a scrum around their locker after a game where they stand there and people can ask questions. But most of that, everyone else is getting as well. So if you're looking for a specific question to an individual, your choices are to do that walk-along, right, where it, hopefully it's just you and, and the player, but you need to have a bit of a relationship with them for that to occur. Hey, LeBron, can I ask a couple questions? You're already walking to the bus, so they're already doing it. They're on their way out. They also know there's a specific cutoff time to this interview because when they get to the bus, if they want, they just get on. So that's about the shortest amount of time. The second one would be if you've set up an interview through a media relations coordinator for a team. In that case, they may say, okay, you're going to get you know, Clay Thompson for five minutes after practice and you go off to the side of a practice court. Clay's just finished. You know, he sort of knows five minutes, right? The third would be, okay, we're going to do a sit down. So now it's going to be an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it might be in a chosen spot. And those interviews, now you've got a little more, you know, room to have a conversation. Hopefully you, you don't need to just get the answers in a, in a, in a time frame. And then the best obviously is when you can spend some time with a person. You know, maybe you have a lunch or maybe you, uh, from a journalist perspective, it's great to watch someone doing what they do. You know, if I were profiling, you know, Dave Levine, I would love to just sit on the side and watch this podcast and see how he goes about it, right? Watch his preparation for it. Watch how he asks these questions. Uh, afterwards, see him and Duffy do the post breakdown, the banter, get a sense for how he prepared if he did in the days prior and then see what his life's like around it. And then you can sort of take Dave and you can center him within this world and then further within this world, see how he does his craft. So ideally that's what you get with someone like LeBron. But of course, you're not gonna get two days trailing LeBron around. Now you might get that opportunity with someone uh, like a coach or another player or over a period of time. 
So like, it's, it's definitely a varied answer, but I'd say if you have 10 minutes, you're probably going to take an approach where you have a very quick, some kind of rapport you're trying to create with someone. Uh, occasionally people will use props for this. I've seen people come in, they bring something that creates a connection to them. I tried this once with LeBron. This was for a cover story in 2008. And he had returned from the offseason and he had bulked up considerably. And there was a lot of talk around the NBA that LeBron was 280 or 290 pounds. And LeBron, who totally understands the, the benefit of mystique, would not tell anyone. And he wouldn't let anyone with the Cavs reveal his true weight. He wanted there to be this mystique. You know, this guy's like a NBA lineman, but he's, you know, coming down the lane at us. Like no one's going to say his weight. And so I had this, you know, limited time slot with LeBron, who I sort of knew, but not that well. And so we show up and it's a fancy hotel, the Fairmont in San Francisco. And we've got a photo shoot set up with Walter Yost Jr., who's one of the, the good, one of the yeah. best photographers in SI history. Uh, of course. And so, you know, I go up to LeBron and, you know, hey, LeBron, good to see you again. And then I pull out of my backpack a digital scale and I just put it down. I was like, all right, LeBron. Let's let's end this once and for all. And he just starts laughing, uh, but he would not get on it. So he wanted to maintain this mystique. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's not it's not the, the highest uh, highest level approach. But what it does is it creates that little moment of intimacy or joke or something. And then you move on from there. And so each interview you're you're doing that differently. Um, if you have a couple of days, then really you just want to disappear and be at the fly on the wall. Uh, ideally, yeah. and then do the questions after. Awesome. So um, we're we're running long. I I mean I have so many more so many more questions for you, CB. But I think we should move on to crunch time. Duff, I promise I will be efficient and not provide any commentary or extraneous comments. No Tiger Woods commentary for crunch time. Um, not a golf podcast, Dave. Jesus. That's right. But it might become one. <laughs> we're expanding. Um, I will say. Um, to our fans, to our listeners, um, I recommend you look up Chris's Audible podcast. Um, Chris, the name is Out of Bounds. Out of Bounds about NIL money and college sports. It's fantastic. It's they follow six athletes. Do that. Um, look up Chris's writing. So, but anyway, let's get to crunch time. Favorite. All right. Let's let's say you can't have a Warrior answer. Okay. We got to go outside the Warriors. Favorite NBA coaches to interview or favorite NBA coach to interview. That's not Steve Kerr. Yeah, I know. It's tough. Kerr's so good. But Mike Malone is a guy, especially when he was an assistant in Cleveland, there's a – when coaches become head coaches, there's so much pressure on them. There's such a spotlight. Uh, every word is parsed. But when they're assistants, you really get a sense for them. And Malone yeah. was just tremendous as an assistant coach. NBA title with the Nuggets last year. Awesome. Favorite NBA player to interview that's not a warrior. Or LeBron. So Dray it would be it would be Draymond because he's amazing. Okay. So then after that, I'd say in order I mentioned this earlier, the the best NBA interviews have been Draymond, Kobe, Battier, LeBron, and Redick would probably be number five. Very successful podcaster as well, almost as good as the Run TMC podcast. Um, any tough interviews, like players or coaches who just gave you nothing. Uh, yeah, it happens more than you than you'd like it to happen, and then you sort of got to work around it. Often, I my first experience with that was when I was relatively young on the NBA beat, and I was sent to write about a young Nuggets star named Carmelo Anthony, and showed up for the interview. 
uh, hotel lobby. They were on the road, sitting down at a bar stool table. And I was so excited. I'm going to do this little feature on Carmelo Anthony. And Carmelo shows up. The media relations coordinator herds him over to the table. And I introduce myself. And Carmelo, Carmelo says hi. And I start into my spiel. Uh, and Carmelo spends the entire 15 minutes uh, typing on his BlackBerry uh, <sighs> while murmuring answers to me. Nice. And that may well have been on me at the time as a young reporter. I clearly did not create the rapport that I was just talking about. You just weren't that interesting, Chris. Um, no. Uh, the toughest toughest story you've had to write. That would be the Monty Williams one, uh, which is uh, worth yeah. worth looking up if uh, if people aren't familiar with it. Great guy, great coach. Had some family tragedy. Um, that was an amazing story. Chris has had some amazing stories. All right, toughest player you've ever played against. You can't say me or Duffy. Uh, this is a Marin podcast, so I thought I would answer this one Marin-centric. Love I it. also note that it's almost an hour and a half in, and we have yet to keep the Bucky Chavez streak alive. So I'm going to mention uh, Bucky Chavez, even though I didn't necessarily match up against him that much. I think yeah. he's just a tough SOB. Uh, second, off the ball, I least like playing against Xander McNally. Uh, who is remarkable if you are anywhere near that passing lane, uh, if he's anywhere near that passing lane and you try to make a cross-court pass, that thing is gone. Uh, and third, it's, it's going to be Duffy. I'm sorry, Dave. But, uh, yeah, many, many driveway battles. And uh, when Duffy is hot, uh, good luck. Never going to hear the end of it. Xander McNally, pride of Branson, and his brother Oliver. Um, all right, last one. I'm not going to do your dream team because – you know what, CB, you've, you've played with too many great players. Uh, most exciting sporting event you've ever attended in person? That would be that 2007 We Believe game. I happened to be covering that, and it was, uh, I mean, Don Nelson on his third Bud Light by the time he gets to the podium after the game. Everyone, yeah. the whole place is, even the journalists, like, you couldn't really, you're supposed to maintain this ethical objectivity, but you know, we'd all waited so long. It was It was pretty amazing. I was there too, and I'll close with this. My dad and I were there, and we went into that little club, the bar in the middle of the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the game, we were waiting for the traffic to die down, and we were just like had dumb smiles on our faces after that happened. And Chris Mullen walked in and walked by, and Chris Mullen was my hero as a kid, as a sure. warrior, and was assistant GM. Um, and I saw, I don't know if this night can get any better. So I'm with you. Um, that's great CB it's uh it's been amazing uh you are a uh, a great human being an amazing writer a talented basketball player um I can't thank you enough for the stories and the insights um really appreciate your time Duffy do you have anything for your brother yeah you're also a, a top-notch brother the best one I've ever had uh, which is a little bit younger <laughs> yeah awesome it's a great interview and we really could go on for a couple couple more hours but when we say goodbye, please don't actually leave because we want to make sure that your uh, your video and your audio upload. But yeah, yes. that, uh, great. Thank you so much, Chris. And uh, more questions and stories offline. Yeah, yeah this coming. is really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun, guys. We'll have round two. All right. Thanks, CB. Well, that was pretty cool, huh, Dave? That was amazing. Uh, I mean, CB is incredible. Very interesting material and, and stories and I will say that uh, Chris is such a good storyteller that I was riveted all the way through, even though I've heard most of these stories several times in the past and uh, just just really good. And as before, we'll have to have Chris back on because there 
as he was going, there were very many more that were, you know, sort of playing in my head that I'd heard over the years from him, NBA stories and otherwise that would be would be great to get back, get him back on it and go through those. Um, but uh, before I hand it over to you, Dave, just a couple thoughts about Chris as a basketball player. And uh, he, as I said earlier, is my favorite teammate of all time. And it's interesting uh, and impressive because he's really a self-made player. He didn't get a lot of skills coaching when he was younger. It's a, it was a lot different, obviously, back then. A lot less attention paid to the skills. We did the block drill with Larry Fulton, but there wasn't a lot else. And he really relied on his athleticism uh, in his high school career and, and college and even playing afterwards. A lot of you know, drive to the hoop, a lot of action at the rim, good jumper, fast. Uh, but he's adapted over time, uh, as good basketball players will do if they want to stay in the game and keep playing. And uh, he's now a savvy point guard, takes care of the ball, and just always in the right spot and a very sneaky rebounder. Uh, I will say that he will often out-rebound Tom Posner in our adult league games, which is pretty impressive, especially since Tom likes to try and steal rebounds from you, from you, yeah, the proverbial you, which is everyone. Anyway, Dave, uh, that's about all I have. What do you got? Yeah, I mean, I, we had an adult league game last night. Duff, you missed it. You were back east. But afterwards, Chris and uh, and I and a few other guys went out to dinner and we were talking about Chris's rebounding because as a guard, he's an amazing rebounder, like you said. And we were talking about the fact that Duff, you and Chris traveled around the country and played pickup basketball in like 160 cities when you guys were in your early 20s, right? When Chris was writing Hoops Nation. And it shows in the way you guys play that you just, you know how to, you know how to play. And Chris is just so fun to play with because he's always moving. He's always cutting. He's finding the open guy. And that's from just playing a lot of pickup in his, his entire life, right? Um, he's a really fun guy to play with. It reminds me of Dave Deneen, another just really fun person to, to play basketball with, plays the right way. So uh, I thought you said it really well. I mean, incredible interview. I could listen to Chris tell stories all day. I love the insights into Kerr and Myers and Jerry West and Steph. Um, you mentioned it in the in the intro. I mean, Chris has spent a lot of time with, did spend a lot of time with Kobe. He wrote a cover story on Dirk, on Tim Duncan. He's on. He spent a lot of time with Draymond. So we didn't even scratch the surface. So we'll definitely have him back to get more thoughts on the NBA. And I do want to throw out one plug for Chris. He's writing a book right now on swimming the ice mile. So for you folks out there who are cold plunge fanatics, stay tuned and read CB's new book that's going to be coming out, I don't know, in the next year or two. Um, but he's just a fascinating guy, and I can't thank him enough for joining us. Um, I just got a video and, yesterday of him and his new cold plunge at his home taking his first dip in the water. I think it was 50-something degrees. Uh, no shivering, no screaming. It was impressive. Yes, it's, it's all the rage. Um, I will so also say one more thing that's impressive based on what you said, Dave, and that you know, we, we have played a lot of basketball, Chris and I, a lot of pickup basketball, a lot of outdoor basketball, and it also shows in our orthopedic surgery resume because we have about 12 surgeries between us, uh, all on knees and uh, hips and, and other joints. Uh, so, yeah, we have it has left its mark there as well. Yes. Cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, so speaking of thanks, I, I wanted to throw out one thank to our thanks to our listeners. Um, Duff and I have 
heard from multiple listeners some genuine appreciation for the amount of time and energy that we've put into specifically into the girls side on this podcast. Girls basketball in Marin is awesome and it should be celebrated just as much as the boys side. Um, and we feel very strongly about that. So we're going to continue to discuss, celebrate, analyze, overanalyze both boys and girls basketball in Marin equally. And uh, we, we really appreciate the love from the listeners. Your emails and messages mean a lot to us. So keep them coming. Uh, so I just wanted to acknowledge that. That's great. Well said. Well said, Dave. All player right. Your control uh, time, Duff. Your control. Yeah. Who's going first? You're going first? Yeah, I'll go first. I have a few ones. So in our vaunted player control segment, first of all, my dog, Bogey, barks in the middle of the Chris Boward interview. Bogey is a jerk. I apologize. Uh, Bogey and I talked about this, but like the kids I coach, he doesn't always execute the game plan. So um, I'm sorry, Bogey, you're not a jerk. I love you, but he barked. I also noted that I said, um, about 309 times in my intro. Uh, so I will work on that. Uh, I apologize. People, uh, just a note, if you want to hate your own voice, just start a podcast and listen to yourself and you will cringe. So I don't believe you, Dave. I don't believe you. And then finally, Duff, I have a, a delayed player control from a previous episode. In the KK interview back in episode three, I spoke disparagingly of a building, not a team or a school. And I want to formally apologize to our friends at university. We talked about your gym. It's a challenging gym to play in. It's small. But I want to be clear. University High School is a phenomenal high school with amazing basketball teams. They're consistently the best, two of the best teams in the state, boys and girls. Randy Beslow on the boys' side, Mary Heil Netful on the girls' side. Unbelievable teams. They beat our San Domenico team four times last year. So, University, we love you. Your gym is is small and hard to play in, probably because we're playing against University. So, anyway, I wanted to acknowledge that uh, we were not speaking disparagingly of University, just that you have a tough gym. And that's it. Well, we like them. But they're not in Marin County, so we do not love them. Correct, Dave. We have to. That's fair. We have to draw the line someplace, and it might as well be the county line. Good discipline, Duff. I like it. Okay, what do you got? Uh, well, two things. First, correspondence. Despite my best efforts recruiting on this podcast and via email, so far we only have one correspondent. Thank you, Mike Mahoney. Uh, who's going to be covering the Branson boys team. He's got a family connection there. Mike is a great, great guy, great player. Actually, probably the best shooter in Marin County, now that I think about it. Mike mm -hmm. is an amazing shooter. He's won multiple three-point shooting contests that I've witnessed. So anyway, thank you, Mike. Uh, but the, the player control is on my lack of hustle with regards to recruiting other correspondents. And I'm going to try and be better, Dave, okay? Okay. Uh, and the other one, this one uh, comes via Mark Anderson and Johnny Kearns, both great basketball players back in uh, back in their time and uh, fans of the podcast. And they wrote to me on LinkedIn and they um, now this is their claim. They say that uh, and this is a Dave Deneen episode. Uh, and they said that San Rafael came out to brass monkey, not it takes two. And then uh, Johnny goes on to say, Deneen's pop culture knowledge, nowhere near his hoops IQ. Great podcast, Steph and Dave. Keep up the good work. Okay. What do you think, Dave? I have, I have an issue. This is okay. like, this is like a debate. Show. It's like Meet the Press, it's like a debate show on Sunday morning. 
Um, I'm the one that said that they came out to It Takes Two, and I am right. I was in the gym. I remember watching the Centerfell High boys team come out, do their layups to It Takes Two by Rob Bass, because that was the first time I ever heard that song. Now, maybe we're both right. Maybe they also came out to Brass Monkey uh, for certain games or in, in certain years, but I am 100% sure that Centerfell High Bulldogs did their layups to It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock. Take it to the bank, Duff. Okay. I'm going to guess you're both right, because I, I'm also going to guess you did not attend every single San Rafael High School game. Totally, totally fair. And by the way, Mark Anderson and Kearns, I, I, we, we love the feedback. It's great. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's probably that. I think we're both right. Let's, yeah. let's go with that. And listeners, if you're going to send us player control uh, foul segment uh, submissions, please concentrate on Dave. That's my 100%. Opinion. Yeah. All right, Duff, I think we've taken up enough time. Yeah, I think we have. All right, and we have some iced coffee to get to. All right, well, thank you for listening to the Run TMC podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, The the Hub, Karen Hortzmeyer, NBBA, and Jeff Skaggs and the Nike Camps. We appreciate your support, and uh, we hope you'll join us again soon. Burke's on his feet. He looks up and gives me a grin and says, Hey, dude. You too must be from Marin.